Amen. Uh, we're back in Joshua, so if you have your Bibles with you, turn to Joshua chapter 2. If you don't have your Bibles with you, it'll be on the screen. We are reading from the NASB version. Uh, just a little note, uh, I chose a font on the screen that's all caps, and so if you see the blue L-O-R-D, that's the L capital all, capital L-O-R-D, it's to signify that, just FYI. Joshua chapter 3, we're going to actually read through the whole chapter, verses 1 through 24. Um, Joshua chapter 2, verses 1 through 24. Then Joshua the son of Nun sent two men as spies secretly from Shittim, saying, Go and view the land, especially Jericho. So they went and came into the house of a harlot whose name was Rahab and lodged there. It was told the king of Jericho, saying, Behold, men from the sons of Israel have come here tonight to search out the land. And the king of Jericho sent word to Rahab, saying, Bring out the men who have come to you, who have entered your house, for they have come to search out all the land. But the woman had taken the two men and hidden them, and she said, Yes, the men came to me, but I did not know where they were from. It came about when it was time to shut the gate at dark that the men went out. I do not know where the men went. Pursue them quickly, for you will overtake them. But she had brought them up to the roof and hidden them in the stalks of flax, which she had laid in order on the roof. So the men pursued them on the road to the Jordan to the fords, and as soon as those who were pursuing them had gone out, they shut the gate. Now before they lay down, she came, up and, uh, she came up to them on the roof and said to the men, I know that Yahweh has given you the land, and that the terror of you has fallen on us, and that all the inhabitants of the land have melted away before you. For we have heard how Yahweh dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt, and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, to Sihon and Og, whom you utterly destroyed." When we heard it, our hearts melted, and no courage remained in any man any longer because of you. For Yahweh your God, he is God in heaven above and on earth beneath. Now therefore, please swear to me by Yahweh, since I have dealt kindly with you, that you also will deal kindly with me, or with my father's household, and give me the pledge of truth, and spare my father and my mother and my brothers and my sisters with all who belong to them, and deliver our lives from death. So the men said to her, Our life for yours, if you do not tell this business of ours, and it shall be come about when Yahweh gives us the land, and that we will deal kindly and faithfully with you. Then she let them down by a rope through the window, for her house was on the city wall, so that she was living on the wall. And she said to them, Go to the hill country, so that the pursuers will not happen upon you, and hide yourself there for three days until the pursuers return. Then afterwards you may go on your way. The men said to her, We shall be free from this oath to you, which you have made us swear, unless when we come into the land you tie this cord of scarlet thread in the window through which you let us down, and gather to yourself in the house your father and your mother and your brothers and all your father's household. It shall come about when anyone who goes out the doors of your house into the street, this, his blood shall be on his own head, and we shall be free. But anyone who is with you in this house, his blood shall be on our head if a hand is laid on him. But if you tell this business of ours, then we shall be free from the oath which you have made us swear. And she said, according to your words, so be it. So she went, sent them away, and they departed, and she tied the scarlet cord in the window. They departed and came to the hill country, remained there for three days until the pursuers returned. Now the pursuers had sought them all along the road, but had not found them. Then the two men returned and came down from a hill country and crossed over and came to Joshua the son of Nun. And they said, and they related to him all that had happened to them. And they said to Joshua, Surely Yahweh has given, us, given all the land into our hands. Moreover, all the inhabitants of the land have melted away before us. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Uh, here in Joshua 2, we have a really interesting story. Right? That, in my opinion, is quite unnecessary, if you're just being honest. Like, you could take this story out of chapter 2, right? And the conclusion of it that happens in chapter 6, right? And overall, the story might actually flow better if you just kind of read the whole thing, right? The story of Rahab and the spies isn't just, it just isn't neat in the big picture if you just kind of look at it like, look at it like a movie, right? You could take it out, and again, if anything, very little, if anything, would change. 
But it's not because of like the narrative or the point of the story, right? Sending of the spies is actually very, very important. They're supposed to go and spy out the land and figure out if everything's okay. And then of course their job is to go back to Joshua and say, hey, everything is good. We can conquest this land and so on and so forth. But the reason why this story is absolutely unnecessary is because the spies are just abjectly terrible. They're the worst spies on the history, in the history of the world, like on the planet. Like I'm sure they meant well, but if you just look at what they do, they're just bad. Like, if you just think about it, like, think about it. They go into spy land, which means you're supposed to be secretive, not get spotted. But as soon as they get to Rahab's house, they're immediately found out. (laughs) And then because of that, right, they're completely and utterly dependent on Rahab, a foreigner, aka enemy, a woman, and a prostitute at that. In terms of who you want to trust in enemy territory, when you're about to conquest and kill everyone in the land to take their land as yours, that's not the person you want to trust. It's just bad, just, just bad. In fact, they don't actually do any spying. There's no espionage going on at all. They don't do anything. They go and they stay at a house and then a woman protects them and then tells them what to do and they follow her exact words and then they go back, right? And then lastly, they come back to Joshua And they report to him, but what they report to him isn't any intel at all. It's actually just a repeat of what Rahab the prostitute told them in her house. What they found is Rahab's testimony. And they trust everything into this enemy woman prostitute's testimony. It's really, really, really bad. And then on top of it, when you read chapter 1, what they tell Joshua is what God told Joshua in chapter 1. So long story short. This story about Rahab in chapter 2 is really not about the conquest at all in many ways. It's about Rahab and then about Rahab's life and what happens with Rahab. In fact, in the story, only Rahab is named. The spies are never named. The, the chasers, the king's men are never named. And in fact, Joshua is only named in reference. Like he's Joshua. So then they told that Joshua does this and they report back to Joshua. So although this story isn't really important to the whole narrative, maybe, we have to then ask ourselves, what is the author trying to tell us? Like, what is he trying to teach us, right, in and through the story? Because again, you don't really need it. And it's not, right, that Rahab is a great person. I mean, on some level, but that's not really the point. Because again, what happens with Rahab isn't anything new. Joshua already knew this. It's not, he doesn't go based off the information. So what are we supposed to learn? What are we supposed to learn about Rahab? Number one, of course, but also most importantly about God. Because all of scripture, as you know, reveals God and therefore reveals us who are in relation to him. So here's the game plan. Here's what we're going to learn today. Three things. First, that Yahweh is God. I know, maybe plain to you. Second, that Yahweh is gracious. And that third, God's grace indeed transforms. Yahweh is God, Yahweh is gracious, and God's grace transforms. First, let's go through a little bit of structure and a quick summary. First, the structure real quick. The chapter is structured like this. You may have seen this last week. It's called the chiastic structure, but it goes from verse one through two. Joshua sends the spies, verses three through eight. I have it here. Rahab receives and protects the spies. Nine to 13 is kind of the central point. Rahab's faith, confession, and conversion into an Israelite and a man of, or woman of God, excuse me, Rahab, and then verses 14 to 21, Rahab and the spies, they make this oath, they do this thing, and then of course 20 to 24 is the report back to Joshua. Now you might remember from a couple weeks ago, this type of structure kind of looks like a V kind of going, well for y'all, going this way, right? It's called a chiastic structure, it's a thing that happens in the Old Testament. The only thing that you really need to know about any of this is that what's in the middle is the main thing of the text. 
I know when we read our books, the main thing happens at the end, but here, the main thing is in the middle. So it's kind of like a burger, right? The outside is the buns, and the inside is like sauce and lettuce, and then the inside is the meat. That's what you want to get at. And if the meat is good, then the burger is good, unless you're a vegetarian maybe, but you know, hey, you get the point. Maybe there's a veggie patty in the middle. You get it. Right? So the point is to understand the meat, the middle portion, and that's kind of what we're going to focus on. Okay, so that's the structure. Just wanted to give you that so that you're uh, aware. Then next, next, let's go through a quick little summary of what happens in the chapter so we kind of have the whole story, though we just read it. Joshua sends two spies to check everything out and make sure that they know what they're getting themselves into. Okay? Again, this is a military conquest. It's not just a stroll through the park. But unfortunately, as we saw, spies get immediately found out. Somehow, they're just, they're, they must have like walked in with like, I don't know, like horns and stuff. Like it's just, how do you get found out that quickly? But anyways, they do. And then the Rahab, the owner of the inn or the house, the prostitute comes to their rescue. Side note, most scholars agree that nothing sketchy happened in this harlot's house. So I think that's kind of, uh, you know, understood. And so we, I think we can go uh, and trust that. Then Rahab hides them. He tr- she tricks the king's men, which is a huge risk because if he, she's found out having helped the enemies who are going to now ransack their land, it's treason and she would die executed almost instantaneously. But then she helps them, devises a plan to escape. And then in verse 7, we were given this little tiny tidbit that the gates were shut. That's kind of the suspense narrative, like their way out has now been shut. So now they got to find something new. Then verse 19 to 13 is when Rahab tells us why she, did, she does all that she does. Because it doesn't really make sense on the surface. If you're kind of thinking about it, why would she protect these men who are coming to destroy her land and her people, right? Like what's all that about, right? And then the Rahab uh, and then the spies make a deal. Spoiler, Rahab and, and her family are the only people that survived this entire conquest. Every single other human being, we'll get to that in a few chapters, are killed. No one is left alive but them. That actually happens. And then the spies do exactly as Rahab says, which again, maybe not the best espionage strategy to trust this woman, but they do exactly as, she's, uh, as she tells them to do. And then what she tells them indeed works exactly the way that she says it's going to work. And then they get back to Joshua and they report to him, aka they just basically tell them what Rahab told them, right? Fascinating story, in my opinion, for many reasons. But let's get back to the three things. All that stuff is important. But let's get back to our three things that we learned. First, Yahweh is God. Now, in verse 9 through 13, the center and the focus of the chapter is Rahab's confession, her statement of faith, or her monologue, if you want to look at it that way. Interestingly, apparently, this is the longest uninterrupted female speech in all of the Old Testament, which means it's a big deal, right? But notice, when you read, notice what this testimony or this faith statement is based on. It's based on things that she has heard. She's heard that Yahweh has given this land to the Israelites. She's heard that he is terrifying and that his terror has fallen upon her land and her people, Canaan. And she knows this because she's heard that God literally split the Red Sea wide open so a bunch of people can walk through it. And then when her enemies were chasing back after Israel, as soon as they hit the Red Sea, and everybody died. She heard that. She's like, oh, shoot, that ain't. mm." And then she heard as they were going what they did to the Amorites. That they literally were destroyed. And so because of this, Rahab's like, um, yeah, this Yahweh dude, guy, yeah, I don't want to mess with him nor his people. I don't want to end up like the rest of them, basically, is what she's saying. Rahab understands that Yahweh is mighty. He is godly in that sense, right? He is God. He's not anyone to be messed with. 
And as a result, her heart melts and her courage to stand up to the foreign people and this God completely goes away and she's ready to white flag wave, surrender, and submit. And then on top of all of this, she's then convinced that Yahweh, as she says, is God in the heaven above and on the earth beneath. Rahab simply, at this point in her life, has heard about Yahweh's godliness, if you want. He's God, the God above the gods of her people. And they had a lot, Asherah, Baal, etc., so on and so forth. But based on what she has heard of this Yahweh and Israel and what Yahweh has done in their path to get to Canaan and get to the Jordan River, she realizes like, OMG, nothing can stand up to this dude. He's the craziest thing, craziest God and the craziest people I've ever, ever heard of. I better smarten up in many ways and not mess with him. He's it. There is no other, period. And again, this is clear because throughout, Rahab calls God, not God, but Yahweh. That capital L-O-R-D in your scripture is Hebrew for Yahweh, which is Hebrew for God's personal name. And you have to know that anyone who uses this title in scripture would only have to be in Israel because that's the only people he revealed this to. Somehow, in her studying, in her hearing, in the stories that have gone around, she recognizes that God isn't just God. He's not Adonai, which is God in Hebrew. He is Yahweh, a personal God. It's like if I just went around, walked around here and said, I know well, actually, that's not bad. I was about to say Beyonce, but that's her only name. Sorry, sorry, sorry. It'd be like if I walked around here and said, I know Obama, but not Obama. I know Barack. Yo, Barack is coming to town today. Like, you know his name. Nobody would call Barack Obama Barack. They would go President Obama or Mr. Obama or President Barack Obama. You know, like, you get the point. Like, the, but that's what she calls him. The Israelite God has now become her God, her personal God, which again then makes this confession that God in heaven and above and earth beneath really, really important. And you must know that this confession that God is the God in the heaven and on the earth beneath only happens three times in all of the Old Testament, which means she's in very select company as to people who understand who Yahweh is. This is complete and utter recognition that Yahweh is her personal God. Then it dawned on me that the question that we then have to ask is, is this the way that we treat God? Because to be absolutely clear, we, like Rahab, have heard about this God, have we not? Unless you live under a rock, and this is the very first time you've ever stepped in this church, and the name of God or Yahweh has ever been the first time you've ever heard of him, all of you have heard about this God, Yahweh and Jesus Christ. All of you, all of us. And in fact, for us, because we live on the other side of the resurrection in Jesus Christ, we've heard that God sends his own son, Jesus Christ, to live, die at our own betrayal, and then he gets up and walks out of the grave. Somehow, undetected by the soldiers who were guarding said grave. Which means that I think it's very fair for us to ask, as I think we read and we're understanding this question, is what we have heard resulting in this type of recognition and more importantly, this type of surrender? It's a fair question for me because the Bible tells us over and over and over and again ad nauseum, without ceasing, that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. 
which means though we've never seen Jesus, I know a lot of people say, but Pastor Pete, I've never seen Jesus. I wasn't alive when he was walking around the earth. I wasn't alive when he walked out of the grave. I didn't see, so how do I know? Well, yeah, that may be a thing. You may say, I, I didn't see him do the miracles. I didn't see him raise people from the dead. I didn't see him get up out of the grave, but neither has Rahab. She's never seen. She's only heard. What she has is the proof of Israel because they are still alive and they're coming after her and her people. We have a proof of the millions of people who follow Jesus and call him their Lord and Savior. A little ragtag group of 12 people after Jesus ascends who go all over the world, all of them, minus minus like one or two, who die at the hands, who are martyred. But yet somehow that little movement based on this little tiny rabbi from Galilee becomes the world's greatest movement that is still alive 2,000 years later. We have way more than what Rahab had, it seems to me. And like Rahab and the Israelites, there are a bunch of second-gen people who didn't live through the slavery and the rescue. They're like us. They inherited this story just like many of us. So who is God to you? Does he bring out such surrender and submission? In some ways, Rahab ends the excuse that we've never seen, therefore we cannot believe altogether because her story is the same. The second thing we learn is that Yahweh is gracious. Something that's commonly missed in this chapter is Rahab's courage to know her place. Right? Let's break this down for a second. Rahab is a Canaanite, which means she knows, like everyone else in Israel's past, that her destiny is to be utterly destroyed because of her nation's sin and immorality. And as you know, with most people, when someone's coming after you and they're trying to destroy you, what is our response? You get your arms, you get your weapons, and you say, I got to defend and protect myself. But Rahab knows that ain't going to work. Not against this God. And so somehow, she has the gumption, the gall, the courage to believe that this terrifying menacing in some ways Yahweh, who is mightier and more godlier, right, than all the gods in the world that she's ever known, just maybe, just maybe, might have mercy upon her and not destroy her as she deserves. And I think you have to understand, this risk is just, it's it's mind-boggling, it's monumental, it's beyond anything that I can think of. Because if she's wrong, she will die but probably not even at the hand of Israel, at her own people's hand, because they'll find her treasonous and a traitor. So you got to ask, what, what gives her this belief, right? This courage that God, this Yahweh God, who's destroyed everything in their path and has had no qualms about it, it seems to her, would be gracious to her, would be kind and faithful to her. And that also that his people would follow whatever he tells them, to not kill her and her family. And remember, she hides and protects them before she gets a chance to talk 
and form out an agreement with them. Remember? The people get there before she has a chance to figure out the plan. All of it happens when they knock on her door and they're like, hey, I know the men are here. She's like, oh, shoot. And then, so why or how? And then I thought to myself, "Mm, could it be? Maybe it's because she knows about the Red Sea crossing, but maybe it's also because she knows what happened before and the why the Israelites had to cross the Red Sea. Now, you all know this, but the reason why the Israelites had to cross the Red Sea in the first place was because they were slaves of Egypt who were being chased down by the Egyptian Pharaoh and his men. Maybe Rahab understood that the Israelites were not big people. They were not big conquerors. They were not these big people who were trying to make their world bigger. They understood that Israel started off real small and puny. They were slaves being tortured at the hands of the Egyptian Pharaoh and Yahweh rescued them. They are the lowest of the low, the nothings of Egypt that Yahweh, this mighty God, mightier than any God she's ever heard of or known, sought out, fought for, and rescued and led through the wilderness for 40 years to the gates of her house. Which means then that I think she recognized that Yahweh is a God who makes slaves and the lowest of the low into his people. And maybe, just maybe, Rahab went, if Yahweh, this God, would rescue slaves of Egypt, then maybe, just maybe, he would rescue an outcasted, unwanted, and discounted prostitute like me and my poor family. Which means I think that she understood then the point of grace. That it's not who you are, it's not who you want to be, it's not who you will be, it's not who you have been. But it is the God who is gracious that those who surrender and depend and trust upon this Yahweh will find that at the heart he is merciful and loving and more gracious beyond any of our imagination. That he is a God who is all about welcoming and saving people to himself. The only thing is that you have to surrender. And that everyone who stands up to him because they think they're bigger and badder will find that their destiny is death. Maybe she looks at herself and goes, who else better than me? The lowest of the low living on the outskirts of the city, the powerless in my family. And the reason why I think this is the case is because more than even saying that God is God and that she calls God by his name Yahweh, when she goes to make the deal with with the spies, she asks for this thing, and it's this Hebrew word called hesed. It's here. She says this, now therefore, please swear to me by Yahweh, since I have dealt kindly, hesedly with you, that you will also deal kindly with hesed with my father's household. This word kindly is the Hebrew word you see on the screen. It's called hesed. It's translated loving kindness and faithfulness. It's a beautiful word that's found all over the Old Testament scriptures in Hebrew, all over the place. And every single time it's written, every single time it's stated, it speaks about God and the love that he has towards the people that he has a relationship with. That God is someone who loves to be in relationship with people and then hesed them. God is all about that hesed and giving it and receiving it, but more importantly, gifting it to the people that maybe don't deserve it. And it makes sense, doesn't it? Because isn't Jesus all about this hesed? 
this steadfast, loving kindness given to people that don't deserve it? So then when you put all of this together, then I think something big jumped out at me, and it says this. In Rahab, we see something that we all have to understand about ourselves and our relationship with God, and this is a big one. It's this, that when a realization of God's godly holiness combines with the deep realization of God's graciousness, you become his, but you have to have both. You have to recognize, like Rahab did, that if you don't have God and you go against his way and you go again from him, all you're going to get is death. You oppose him, you stand up to him, you rebel against him, then your fate is death. But you surrender, then you become his. See, when you realize that God is both might and mercy, grandeur and grace, holy and hesed, then you're transformed. But you have to have the both. I've said this before, but read the Old Testament. Read the Pentateuch, all the five books before this. And the whole thing, if you just read it, it's just God. It's a major flex. All God is doing, most part, if I can sum it up in one word, is God is saying, do you know how holy I am and how holy you not? How despair, like how big this chasm is between who I am and who you simply are not. And when you recognize that and you're willing to surrender to both his holiness and his hesed, then you become like Rahab. Deo Ralph Davis says, genuine faith never rests content with being convinced of the reality of God, but presses on to take refuge in God. Basically, it don't matter if you know that God is God. Everyone goes, yeah, yeah, but I know that God is God. And I'm going, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, cool. But if you don't take refuge in him because you don't recognize that without him your life is toast, then God being God simply does not mean a whole lot, basically. See, Rahab knows and understands and accepts, therefore, that God's holiness means that sin cannot exist with him or around him or in his presence, and that all sin must face his wrath and a.k.a. death, and therefore that death is just and right. But Rahab knows better than anyone, it seems, that God is also full of mercy and grace. And so Rahab makes the most, most important decision of her life. That though she trembles in God's presence because she just can't fathom how great he is, how holy he is, she totally submits to his hesed, love, and grace. Which then begs the question, what is our posture before God and Jesus? I mean, I honestly... How do you handle knowing that we know a God who is so holy and powerful that he can just get up out of a grave and yet that he's so loving and gracious that the reason he's in the grave in the first place is because he paid for yours and mine, our sit and our, our sin and our punishment. Like, like I, I don't, I don't want to stick, I don't want to get stuck here, but I think we don't quite I don't know who you trust in the world. I don't know whose ways you think are the best. I don't know who, what CEO, what person, or someone's words, or their wisdom that you think is the way you ought to live. But I'm going to, I think we ought to, we all of us ought to logically go, wait, if someone can literally just get up out of a grave because he feels like it, yeah, I'm gonna go with that guy. No one else's words are more impressive than the one who can get up out of a grave and say, death, you ain't got nothing on me, peace, I'm out. 
It doesn't happen. So hopefully our answer is like Rahab. God, I'm yours. And the third thing we learn is that God's grace then transforms. Rahab, as you know, is a Canaanite. She's a foreigner. That's bad news bears. Rahab is also a prostitute. That's badder news bears. And Rahab is also in God's way. She is an enemy of his. That's the baddest news bears. But somehow... She finds herself in the thick of Israel's plan to conquest and she springs into action. I love this about Rahab. Not only has the Israelite spies entered into her house, like why? Like, I don't know, maybe if if I was Rahab, I'd be like, why are you here? Why my house? Go try somebody else's house. There's plenty of other harlots and prostitutes in the city. You can probably find anyone's house, but why my house? Why you gotta come and bring this to me? Maybe that's just me. And then secondly, I'd be like, and why are you so stupid and bad at espionage that you would get immediately discovered? Why couldn't you get discovered after you left my house? Why, right? And what transpires, in my opinion, can only be described as Rahab is a bad, you know what. And though she risks death, treason, murder, execution, torture, all that, She throughout seems so cool, so calm, and so collected, doesn't she? Even as she's lying to the spy, she is cooler than the other side of the pillow. By the way, the point of the story is not that she lies. And the point of the story isn't to prove to you that the ends justify the means. That's not. If you look at the narrative and how it's written, that's not. It's just she has to do what she has to do in the point. Oftentimes, I kind of liken it to what a lot of the people in the Holocaust did when they were saving, trying to save the Jews, and they had to lie to the Nazis, being like, oh, yeah, I don't have any Jews here. But anyways, that's not the point if you think it's the point. Rahab fends off the men, convinces the enemy spies to her, at that point they're enemies, and then devises a plan for their safety and then their escape, and then negotiates a deal so that when God ransacks the place, that she would be the one family in all of the land. And we showed you the maps of how big this land is. All of those people are all going to be dead except for her family. Somehow she does all of that. And her family, indeed, are the only survivors. I mean, like, talk about transformed and faith in action, no? Like, if you want to find one person whose faith is real and they live out their faith, Rahab is the person you might want to look at, right? And she does it in circumstances that you and I will never face. Spies are not going to come to our house. Spies of the country that's going to ransack our nation and kill all of our people are never going to enter your house and you're, going to, you're not going to have to protect them against the CIA or anything like that. None of that stuff is going to ever happen. And yet here she is acting the way that she does. A lowly, outcasted nobody showing all of us faith being lived out, like for real faith being lived out, not just kind of this fake thing that we do sometimes here in the church. Oh, and if you were here during Advent, she's also crazy enough and included in Matthew's genealogy of Jesus as one of Jesus' great, 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 great grandmothers. Remember this? Yeah, she's in there. Boop, there she is. Sorry for colorblind people who can't see the laser. Not to mention that she's explicitly mentioned in the New Testament twice as being a woman of faith, justified for her actions in Hebrew and in James. See, I think Rahab is in my opinion one of the best examples of someone who goes beyond just knowing and believing in God, but living out her knowing and believing in God. 
She puts it all into practice. She lets her walking do the talking, if you know what I mean. And before we become discouraged that maybe, oh, I'm not like Rahab, like Pastor Peter, how do you expect me to be like Rahab? Like she's, she's cool, she's smart, like she doesn't get nerve, like, you know, like I'd be sweating like crazy, like I might be peeing in my pants in those kind of situations. Like I don't know what I would do, like I'm really scared, I, I can't even handle little bits of pressure, like, you know, I don't even know what to do. Before you get to that point, you have to understand that she's actually not very extraordinary at all. And you have to understand that what happens to Rahab is actually not crazy. It's not outside of this world. This story isn't like some story you find in the fairy tales. No, what happens to Rahab is actually very, very normal. Because here's what happened, just broken down for you. First, she hears about God. And all of us, like I said, hear about God. I hope you agree. Then after she hears about God, she takes it all in, which most of us do. Most of us, at least it stays in the brain before it goes out the other ear. It goes whoop, and then kind of, and then she takes it in. And then after she takes it in, she turns to God, which I think some of us do, as Bible tells us. And then the last thing is then she totally relies on God, which it seems very few of us do. See, the trajectory of her story isn't extraordinary, isn't out of this world, isn't unfamiliar. To us, all of it's available. Every single one of you have heard about God. All of you, I think, have taken it in to some degree. Some of you indeed have turned to God as, his, as our Savior, but so only a few have relied upon him, and maybe that's the critical difference. See, I love Rahab and her story, and I love that it's included here in this narrative because her story is very similar to our story. It's so ordinary and so normal in some ways, and therefore it ought to be an encouragement to all of us. No matter who you are, you are better than Rahab in many ways which means all of you can be like Rahab. You're not discounted. The church is not a place where the holy gather, where we wear our badges of honor and things on our chest. No, the church is a place where the most discounted and outcasted and lowly God uses to make holy in his world better. Actually, in a room like this, if we're just being honest, the ones we discount the most in here are probably the ones that are going to do the greatest work of God and they're the ones that we think are too young to be in this place with us sometimes. Or for those of you who feel like you don't have nothing to give, you don't got anything to offer, your life is too broken, you come from nothing. Actually, the people that are in most danger in this room, let me talk to you, are all the leaders people who've been Christians forever, people like me, people like Pastor Goose, people like our wives, people like our family, people who are supposed to be all this, we're in the most danger. You know why? Because we will have the pride to think that we've done something with our lives that we can actually stand up to God for ourselves. But God, I faithfully served you for X number of years. I did all of this for you. which then means that this entire story in the long run is not about Rahab at all. It's actually all about God. Because it's about his holiness and his godliness. It's about his character, that he is a hesed God. It's about how he redeems that no matter who you are, who you were, who you will be, who you hope to be, God is faithful and just. He keeps all of his promises and he's calling you a people unlike anything we've ever seen, an un, un 
ungrateful and a sinful, a wretched, not very well endowed, like all these people he calls to himself. He calls us, regardless of your past identity, regardless of your racial identity, regardless of your gender, regardless of how long you've been doing this, regardless of how old you are, how much money you make, what your status is, what diploma you have, none of that matters to him. The only thing that matters is that we recognize who he is and what he is like and surrender and take refuge in that and follow his ways. Don't get it twisted, I'm telling you. Anytime you know you're supposed to do something and be something because he tells you and you go opposite, you are rebelling. And rebellion against God has only one outcome. But if you surrender, if you admit that though it doesn't make sense that this holy and crazy powerful sinless God would somehow give you mercy, then you become his. And no matter who you are, you might just end up in a position you never expected to be like Rahab ends up being Jesus' great, 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 great grandmother. So the question is, will you take refuge in him? Maybe this is an unpopular opinion and the praise team can come up because we're almost finished. But I really don't think that God in the long run cares how much of the Bible you've read, how many early morning prayers you've been to, how much you've served and how much all the things you've done if your heart cannot proclaim. If he like, I don't know, the way I look at it is like if you like, maybe let's say you like passed out and like somehow there's a way to like open up your heart and like know what's in here and open up your mind. And if, the, and if the transcript of your heart doesn't read, I completely surrender to him, then I don't think he's gonna care about all of that stuff because you still think that you are greater than him. And newsflash, you ain't. And I think sometimes we'll get to him And we'll have our resume and all the things that we did. This is why I always talk about praise leaders and pastors and leaders and teachers because we have all the resumes of all the things that we did in our lives. And then we'll get to him and we'll be like, okay, God, like I'm ready. Like it's like like some sort of interview. And I feel like this is the way I look at it. God will look at us and we'll be paralyzed. Like we won't be able to say nothing even though we want to be like, oh, but God, I did this, 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 all of this. And I was this and I tried this and I'm from this family and I have this and all the accolades and everything. And then his presence, I think, will shut us up and then he'll ask us one simple question and he'll say, am I your Lord? And if the answer isn't yes, then he'll be like, mm, sorry, I never knew you. And then if you're like, but, but God, I did all these, but, 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 but God, 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 I, no, but, but, but just wait, wait, just, God, wait, 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 wait. And then he'll be like, did you hear? Did someone teach you? Did you take it in? Did you turn to me? And did you totally rely and surrender? And if our answer is not yes, 100%, God, with everything that I could possibly do, then he'll say, bye-bye. See, I hope that we hear that the gospel, it is great because we are so wretchedly undeserving of it. And the one thing that we have difficulty doing more than anything is to come with nothing. 
is to offer our broken bodies as a living sacrifice that he would make us new. And to think. The fate of all Israel rested in this wretched prostitute's life and words and God used her to give the people the promised land they've been waiting for for 40 years. So don't let anyone ever tell you that you're not worthy of his love or that he can't use you. It's a lie. So will you take a moment the religious and the Christian eyes and the leaders of the room, we should be trembling because we so easily, quickly turn that and go to the other side and say, God, here's what I can give to you. For those of you who think that you're not much, you're in the perfect position just like Rahab because then all you got to say is, God, I got nothing. Have mercy. Have hesed. Deal kindly with me. I know I don't deserve it. And then he will do in you that which you cannot dream nor imagine. So will you respond? We're not all about the hands and the things in this place, as you know, but maybe just this posture, just like, huh, maybe that's appropriate. Maybe words, actually, no, no words, excuse me, are appropriate. Just, uh, and will you respond? And then we'll pray together for the offering and then we'll respond in song. But RK family, I hope that we become a people who, like Rahab, know our place and have the courage to know that God doesn't have to give us any grace. Actually, the wages of sin are death, clearly, but he gives it to us and he takes his own life and walks up out of a grave so that we can have it. And when that grace becomes yours, your life transforms.